Hello, and welcome to another episode. Today, we're going to explore the history of atomic theory. I love history and learning about historical figures and their contributions. Now, I'm a science person, but the reasons science is important are historical, and so knowing how each new discovery changed our understanding of the universe tells the story of science. Atomic theory goes back two and a half thousand years. The focus of this video is not just on atoms, but also their building blocks. We will begin by discussing the concept of the atom and how it changed over time and was eventually scientifically proven. We will then focus on discovering unique atoms known as elements and how we went from knowing of only a handful to well over a hundred. Then finally, we will discuss how the building blocks of atoms, the proton, neutron, and electron were each discovered. Let's get started. Before we begin today's episode, I want to tell you that if you like this content and want to support me, you can check me out on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. Just search Planet Peterson on those platforms. You can also find links to my Patreon, Venmo, and more by going to my YouTube channel and clicking the link in the banner that says support the channel. Okay, back to the episode. The origins of atomic theory go back to the 5th century BCE. In 460 BCE, a man named Democritus was born in an area called Thrace. Democritus was a philosopher, and there were many schools of philosophy back then. For example, Aristotle founded the Lyceum, where he and other philosophers adhered to his Aristotelian beliefs and taught them to students. Pythagoras got his name put on the Pythagorean theorem, but he did not work alone either, and his discoveries were almost certainly the work of many people coming together, as Pythagoras had an entire cult following of mathematicians. Democritus had a mentor named Leucippus, born the same year as Democritus. Records from this area are depressingly incomplete thanks to the passage of time and the burning of the Library of Alexandria, so we don't know who deserves the most credit, but Democritus and Leucippus were atomists. They believed that everything was made of unique, imperishable, indivisible elements called atoms. The Greek word tomos means to cut. When you put a in front of a word, that sometimes changes its meaning to without. Atom literally means uncuttable. They imagined that there must exist the smallest possible thing that cannot be altered in any way, and that everything around us is made of those things. This is a very good approximation, but we will see how the details don't hold up. The logic of atomism makes sense. You can't just reduce physical material in half all the way to infinity, but that's pretty much where the logic ends and the speculation begins. Democritus thought there must be an infinite number of different atoms. Today we know that's not the case. For example, water isn't made of a special water atom, it's made of two atoms chemically combined, which creates a new substance with new properties. Greek philosophers were also obsessed with geometry. They believed geometry could explain everything about the universe. And so atomists like Democritus imagined that atoms must come in a variety of shapes. Sour or bitter tasting things are made of sharp angular atoms, whereas sweet tasting things must be made of more round atoms. They imagined atoms as being convex, concave, hook-shaped, and even the shape of an eye. These are all extremely creative and fun ideas, but they're wrong. Democritus also believed that atoms are the only things that actually exist. Everything else is a social convention, existing only in our minds. We have words for things like chairs, but a chair is really a collection of simpler, fundamental things. Things that truly exist must have rigid, unchanging properties and forms, and atoms are the only thing that fits that bill. Think of it like this. If we had a pile of sand, 10 feet tall, we could call that a heap of sand. 
if I removed one single grain of sand from it, it would still be a heap. But there's clearly no point whereby removing one single grain of sand, our heap goes from a heap to a non-heap. However, eventually, this process leaves us with no sand at all. This proves that the heap is something that we imagine, and it can't be defined. We could do the same thought experiment by removing one atom at a time from a chair, from you, from the earth, etc. So the atom is the only thing that definitely exists. The other major idea at the time, which persisted for over 2,000 years, was the concept of the classical elements. At first, there was earth, air, fire, and water, and then later, ether was added as the element that composes space, because space could not be an empty, matterless void, according to them. While time has been kind to the atomic theories of Democritus and Leucippus, the classical elements are kind of a joke. The theory has no real explanatory value, and there's nothing in the discoveries made about the nature of matter that vindicates any of it. Just listen to this quote from Aristotle about what elements are. An element, we take it, is a body into which other bodies may be analyzed, present in them potentially or inactually, which of these is disputed, and not itself divisible into bodies different in form. That, or something like it, is what all men in every case mean by element. Now, the part that says, not itself divisible into bodies different in form, is vaguely, if we're being nice, similar to atomic theory as we understand it, but the rest of this is mumbo-jumbo. Atomic theory would remain in its infant form for a few thousand years. The nature of atoms is so elusive, and they are so microscopic, and everything around us is made of composites of many different atoms, that it was going to take a very long time to unlock anything about the true nature of atoms. But beginning in the 1600s, matter began to be demystified. Virtually none of the matter you interact with is elemental. By that I mean composed of just one species of atom. That's what an element is. Gold is an element because there is a gold atom. Water is not an element, it's a compound made of different atoms. Ancient atomists would have thought that any pure substance is made of a type of atom. So they would have imagined that there is a water atom. They had almost no understanding that air is a material, but they would have likely supported the idea that air is made of a special air atom, not a mixture of different atoms. The ancients interacted with many pure elements, gold, silver, copper, sulfur, nickel, iron, and more. But they had no proof these were elements. To discover an element would require isolating it, separating it from a compound, thus proving that the compound is made of different subunits. The first element to be discovered experimentally was phosphorus by Hennig Brand in 1669. Brand was an alchemist, and alchemists believed you could create any material through what we would call chemistry, but they called alchemy. We know this isn't true because, for example, gold is an element and can't be created from simpler substances. The alchemists were right with regard to compounds, but they didn't understand what they were doing. Brand isolated phosphorus from urine. He left the urine out to let most of the water evaporate. He then boiled the remaining urine into a paste and heated the remaining paste, which evaporated everything that couldn't withstand the temperature. This is similar to what happens when you burn toast. The hydrogen and oxygen atoms separate from the carbohydrates in bread and evaporate as water. But carbon, which is resilient at those temperatures, remains. Brand pumped the vapors emanating from the urine extract through water in the hopes it would make gold. Spoiler alert, it didn't. And in the end, he was left with a white, waxy material that glowed in the dark. 
Brand had isolated the element phosphorus. Phosphorus burns with an intense white light, and Brand named it Phosphorus Mirabilis, which means Miraculous Bearer of Light. Am I giving Brand too much credit? Well, perhaps. He wasn't a scientist, nor was he the first to isolate an element. People had been burning wood for coal, which is mostly carbon for millennia, but they didn't know what they were doing. Brand, on the other hand, experimentally separated a substance that could not be broken down into simpler substances from a compound. In the 1700s, the elements cobalt, nickel, magnesium, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, and 13 others would be discovered, followed by 49 in the 1800s. The final eight naturally occurring elements were discovered all in the 20th century, with an additional 27 elements created experimentally in the 20th and 21st centuries. This gives us a periodic table with all 118 spaces accounted for. Uranium is the heaviest naturally occurring element. All elements lighter than it, except for technetium, can be found within the Earth or form briefly as the products of radioactive decay. What we learned was, no, there are not infinite different kinds of atoms for the infinite number of ways matter can be arranged. There are fewer than a hundred. But it didn't take until the 21st century to prove this. The most important work in developing the modern scientific theory came from John Dalton in the early 1800s. Born on September 16, 1766 in Eaglesfield, England, John Dalton is remembered for developing the modern atomic theory in 1803, which is still remarkably accurate to this day. 23 elements had been discovered, and 14 others had been known for the past 1 to 10,000 years. Dalton, like other scientists, knew that certain gases were compounds made of separate elements. But carbon and oxygen don't just form carbon dioxide, they can also form carbon monoxide. Hydrogen and carbon can form many gases, such as ethane, ethylene, and methane. What Dalton discovered using extremely careful measurements was that the amount of each element that combines to form a compound is always a fixed ratio. Today this study is called stoichiometry, and it's a way to measure and predict how much of one element will combine with another. For example, if you have 4 grams of hydrogen gas and you want to make methane, you will need to mix it with exactly 12 grams of carbon, yielding 16 grams of methane. However, if you want to produce ethylene gas, you'll need 24 grams of carbon, but still the same 4 grams of hydrogen. Different compounds require different unique proportions of each element, which you can ultimately see in the chemical formula and structure for each compound. Dalton also observed that after creating a compound from elements, you could always obtain those elements again by chemically breaking the compound down. This meant that the atoms themselves remain wholly intact the entire time. Based on these and other observations, Dalton proposed his atomic theory. 1. Elements are made of extremely small particles called atoms. 2. Atoms of a given element are identical in size, mass, and other properties. Atoms of different elements are different in size, mass, and other properties. 3. Atoms cannot be subdivided, created, or destroyed. 4. Atoms of different elements combined in simple whole number ratios to form chemical compounds. And finally, number 5, in chemical reactions, atoms are combined, separated, or rearranged. Dalton's atomic theory has been refined but not overturned by our modern understanding of atoms, much like how Einstein refined our understanding of gravity without disproving Isaac Newton's laws. Dalton's first point is completely true. Dalton's second point is not entirely true. Today we know that elements can have different isotopes. 
This will make their mass very slightly different, but their chemical properties are identical. Two different elements can have the same mass, but they always have different properties. Dalton's third point is false based on what he believed about atoms. We know that we can split the atom, such as what happens during fission, and we know atoms can be fused, such as in the cores of stars or in particle accelerators, and we know that radioactive elements transform into other elements. We could imagine this as partially true, in the sense that if you split an atom, it ceases to be that particular atom. It will become two different elements. Dalton's fourth and fifth points are completely true. The 1800s were a remarkable century for science. Michael Faraday and James Clerk Maxwell unraveled the mysteries of electricity and magnetism. Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace revealed how populations and species change over time and evolve into new forms. And, one by one, the elements that make up everything, everything, were being discovered. They must have felt extremely confident, like they were on their way to knowing everything about the nature of matter itself. But, in 1897, another British scientist discovered that atoms aren't the entire story. The ancients knew that rubbing wool onto amber would make small fragments of the material cling to it. The Latin word for amber is electrum, and Francis Bacon coined this phenomenon the electric attraction. Aristocratic folk entertained guests with cute little demonstrations on what we today would call static electricity. Showmen drew huge crowds demonstrating the electric phenomenon. Although the sparks generated from these demonstrations resembled lightning, the conventional thought at the time was that lightning was a supernatural phenomenon, not a natural one. Sometimes, lightning killed animals, or people, or burned down barns. It was unthinkable to most people that random events could cause so much suffering. This belief was overturned by Benjamin Franklin. No, Benjamin Franklin didn't fly a kite into a lightning storm. No, the kite did not get hit by lightning. That would have killed him to death. What really happened is, during a mild rain, Franklin flew a silk kite with a metal rod attached to it. The rope was made of hemp, the end of which had a key tied to it. Franklin held a silk rope tied to the end of the hemp rope. Silk is a bad conductor, so this keeps the electric charge inside the hemp rope. When Franklin brought his hand near the key, sparks emanated from it towards his hand. This was arguably the greatest scientific discovery of the 1700s. The most important discoveries are ones that demystify natural phenomena, and Franklin did just that. But every new discovery leads to new questions. Michael Faraday and James Clerk Maxwell showed the world how electricity and magnetism are linked together, and how electricity can flow through wires. Electricity was no longer thought to be produced from positive and negative electrical fluids, but from matter itself. Scientists hypothesized that matter is composed of positive and negative subatomic particles, which exist in equal quantities and neutralize each other within the atom. But this was all pure speculation at the time. In 1897, J.J. Thompson, a British scientist, discovered the first evidence of this. There are these things called cathode ray tubes. They look like giant elongated light bulbs. When you connect them to electricity, a bright, usually green beam forms inside them. Like a neon sign, but the beam is narrow and doesn't fill up the whole tube. A quick Google search will be your ally here. The beam of light in the middle was first thought to be electromagnetic radiation. But this beam could be attracted or repelled with a magnet. Electromagnetic radiation doesn't do that because it has neither mass nor charge. Only matter can do that. The beam of light in the tube is a product of whatever gas is inside the tube. 
Different gases produce different colors. Thompson discovered that this beam has mass, and he was able to figure out the mass of the particles that make up the beam, and found it was nearly 2,000 times less than the mass of the lightest element, hydrogen. The critical detail was, no matter what gas was put in the cathode tube, the mass of the ionized beam was constant. This demonstrated that something with a negative charge was being separated from matter, and that it must be a universal building block of matter because it has the same mass in every element. This was the discovery of the electron. Thompson first called these particles corpuscles, but the name was changed by scientific convention. The existence of the electron basically proved there must also be positively charged subatomic particles. The hunt was on to find it. In 1886, Eugene Goldstein, a German physicist, discovered positively charged rays inside of discharge tubes. This predates the similar phenomenon that led to the discovery of the electron by over a decade. However, these anode rays always had different mass-to-charge ratios. Anode means positive charge, cathode means negative charge. The varying mass in the anode rays meant the existence of these anode rays could not be attributed to a single particle. Today we know this is because the nucleus of each atom is composed of multiple protons and neutrons tightly joined together, except in the case of hydrogen. At the turn of the 20th century, what scientists knew was atoms exist, there are dozens of unique atoms which make up elements, and they definitely contain a negative particle, the electron, which accounts for approximately one two thousandth of the mass, and overall, atoms are neutral. J.J. Thompson's model of the atom was dubbed the plum pudding model. Thompson imagined the electrons evenly distributed throughout a positively charged matrix, which explained how atoms have a much heavier mass than the electron they contain and how they are neutral. It's probably easier to think of the electrons like chocolate chips, and the rest of the atom is the cookie they're embedded in. Now, although we cannot see atoms, we can still figure out how they're structured. In science, we develop models and use those models to make predictions. Models that make accurate predictions are taken to be true. Thompson's model did not make good experimental predictions. Ernest Rutherford, a New Zealand physicist, performed experiments using alpha particles. Alpha particles are the nucleus of a helium atom, composed of two protons and two neutrons. This makes them positively charged. Alpha particles are ejected from certain radioactive materials as part of the radioactive decay process, which scientists didn't really understand at the time. What was understood was these alpha particles were positively charged and acted like atomic cannonballs. What Rutherford did was surround a very thin piece of gold foil with a detector that could measure where an alpha particle struck its surface. If J.J. Thompson's model was correct, the alpha particles should cannonball straight through the foil. Thompson's model suggested that the radius of the atom was vastly larger than we know they are today, and the positive charge was too spread out to be able to repel positively charged alpha particles. The results of the experiment suggested something completely different from what Thompson thought. Indeed, most of the alpha particles do pass right through the foil, but some are deflected left, right, at 90 degrees, or almost straight backwards. This meant a few things. One, the positively charged region of the atom must exist independently of the negatively charged region. Two, the positively charged region must be highly condensed, or else it wouldn't have the strength to repel incoming alpha particles. And finally, 
the atom must be almost entirely empty, which explains why the majority of alpha particles pass right through. This experiment was carried out in 1911. What Rutherford discovered was the nucleus of the atom, and later in 1917, he discovered the nucleus is made of individual subatomic particles, protons. More on that soon. The nucleus contains well over 99.9% .9 of an atom's mass, but occupies well under 99.9% .9 of its volume. If an atomic nucleus was the size of a marble, the overall diameter of the atom would be around 100 meters. Just try to imagine a marble placed on the 50-yard line of a football field, and the next closest thing with any noticeable mass is 100 meters away with nothing in between. The overall volume of our model of an atom here is over 7.5 billion times larger than that marble nucleus, but it only contains one. The eventual discovery of the proton, we haven't gotten there yet, proved fundamental to discovering something else about the atom and the elements. What makes them different from each other? Elements are organized on the periodic table, which was the vision of a single person, Dmitri Mendeleev. Mendeleev saw a pattern, a periodicity, with the known elements. He arranged them into columns according to their mass and rows according to their chemical properties, which is to say commonalities in how they react with other substances. Today we do this the other way around, with rows called periods where the elements are arranged by mass, and columns called groups where elements are arranged by chemical properties. Mendeleev was decades ahead of his time with this concept, and he predicted the discovery and properties of four unknown elements, one of which wasn't discovered until the next century. Although Dalton and Mendeleev discovered many truths about atoms and elements, nobody knew what made each element different. The only thing that was known for certain was that each element has a different mass, but mass didn't seem like something that could be the very essence of what an element is. Differences in atomic mass also don't produce a perfect pattern. Generally, each consecutive element on the periodic table is heavier than the one before it, but in a few places, an element is lighter than the one that comes before it. The solution was found in the 1910s. For reasons that are beyond the scope of this podcast, atoms are capable of emitting various types of electromagnetic radiation. You've seen this phenomenon many times before. When metal is heated and glows, that is caused by the release of light energy from its atoms. Atoms can also emit X-rays, which are just a different type of light, across a wide range because all electromagnetic waves come in a range of wavelengths. An English physicist named Henry Moseley discovered that each element emits a highly specific range of X-rays, and the range of X-rays they emit forms a perfectly repeating pattern that matches the sequence of elements on the periodic table. For reasons that are, again, beyond the scope of this podcast, the emission was known to be released by electrons. Since each element produces a unique X-ray spectrum, they must therefore be composed of a unique number of electrons. And since atoms are electrically neutral, they must also contain the same number of positively charged particles to neutralize those electrons. In 1917, Ernest Rutherford would confirm the existence of those particles, and they became known as protons. Sadly, Mosley was killed during battle in World War I in 1915. He had given up physics to serve his country and gave the ultimate sacrifice. Mosley's law, as it is known, is a fundamental scientific principle when it comes to an understanding of nature of atoms. Every atom has a unique atomic number, as Mosley called it 
This atomic number is the number of protons it contains. Every gold atom in the universe has precisely 79 protons and no other element does. If you could, through the powers of magic or physics, add a single proton to the nucleus of every atom in a solid bar of gold, the entire thing would become mercury, the 80th element. On the other hand, an element can surrender one of its electrons or steal one, and it still remains the same element, albeit with a positive or negative charge. Atomic number superseded atomic mass as the defining feature that differentiated one atom or element from the next. But atomic mass was still presenting science with a significant problem. It took the discovery of the final subatomic particle, the neutron, to solve this problem. Thanks to all the scientists so far mentioned, and many others like Niels Bohr, Henry Becquerel, and more that I don't have time to discuss, we had an ever-increasingly clear picture of what makes up atoms. We knew that every element has a unique atomic number, how many protons its nucleus contains, and that an atom will have an equal number of electrons occupying different orbitals within energy levels surrounding the nucleus. But there was one glaring problem. Hydrogen, the simplest element with an atomic number of one, has a mass of, let's just say, one. This is what we call its atomic mass unit, or AMU, and it is essentially equal to the mass of one proton. Helium, the second simplest element with an atomic number of two, has an AMU value of four, how can helium be four times more massive than hydrogen? Beryllium, the fourth element, has an AMU value of nine, so it's more than twice the mass of helium, despite being only twice its atomic number. Farther down on the periodic table, uranium has an atomic number of 92, so 92 times greater than that of hydrogen. But its mass is a full 238 times that of hydrogen. This was troublesome enough, but scientists were also discovering isotopes of each element. According to Dalton's atomic theory, atoms of a given element are identical in size and mass and other properties. Atoms of different elements differ in size, mass, and other properties. But in the 1910s, yet another English physicist named Frederick Soddy discovered that there are 40 unique radio elements between uranium and lead, although the periodic table only allows for 11 elements. As it turns out, each element can have slightly different masses. Most carbon atoms in the universe have an AMU value of 12, but some of them have an AMU value of 14, the same as nitrogen. These are the isotopes, variations of the same element that differ in mass. Rutherford had imagined that perhaps elements had nuclear electrons, which did not add mass but made the atoms neutral. So according to Rutherford, nitrogen, for example, was made of 14 protons, which accounted for virtually 100% of its mass, and then there were seven nuclear electrons and seven other electrons orbiting outside the nucleus. But this theory fell apart under experimental scrutiny. So where did the missing mass that atoms contain come from? That was finally uncovered in 1932 by, stop me if you've heard this before, a British scientist named James Chadwick. To fully comprehend this, there are some specifics about radiation that you need to know, but we're going to skip directly to the point here since this is already a very long episode. Remember those alpha particles we discussed earlier? When those alpha particles hit beryllium, it causes a type of radiation with no charge to be released. Alpha particles themselves are helium nuclei with no electrons, so they have a positive charge. But what could this other kind of radiation with no charge be? It was assumed to be gamma radiation at first, 
but this radiation had sufficient energy to force protons to be shot out of paraffin wax or some other material, which is an impossibility for gamma radiation of this type. What Chadwick had discovered was a particle with equal mass to a proton, hence its ability to release a proton when striking something, but with no electric charge, the neutron. Finally, the elementary subatomic particle responsible for that unaccounted mass seen in every element and the variations in mass seen in the isotopes of the same element was discovered. In science, every new discovery tends to open the door to things we had no idea about. Ironically, the more we learn, the more we realize we don't know. Unlocking the secrets of what makes up ordinary matter introduced us to quantum mechanics, where Newtonian physics can't be applied. An electron doesn't exist in a discrete location. It exists sort of everywhere within a three-dimensional area described by a wave function. In the early 20th century, Einstein said, there's no indication that nuclear energy will ever be obtained. It would mean that the atom would have to be shattered at will. Today, we have nuclear bombs and nuclear power plants. Understanding nuclear processes like radioactive decay allowed scientists to learn the age of the Earth, 4.56 billion years. Synthetic elements started to be created in labs until now the entire periodic table is filled. And it turns out these elementary particles aren't all there are either. Protons and neutrons are made of quarks. There are antimatter particles and neutrinos and muons and many others. The next revolution in atomic science is anybody's guess. The important thing to keep in mind is not to assume we have everything figured out. That does it for this episode. Thanks for listening. 